Today's episode is brought to you by Away Travel. Quite simply, Away makes everything you need for a trip, well, away. They started with the perfect suitcase, then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from personal experience. While Away might be a small glimmer in the back of your mind during this time, we want you to know that when it's safe to go, Away won't let you down. To give the whole world access to better travel standards, Away took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices, and the quality is guaranteed. Your Away suitcase will be with you for life. We are teaming up with Away to give you the best deal on premium luggage by going to podgo.co slash away. That's podgo.co slash away. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry. Have you ever had the feeling that something was missing from your sex ed experience or things that you've learned about your body and other bodies throughout your life? You're probably right. Today, we're joined by creator of Pussy Pots, Meredith, who is working to combat the pervasive cultural anxiety and stigma around vulvas. Yes, I said it. And it's vital that we do. We hope that you enjoy this week's episode. It's our pleasure. I would love for you to introduce yourself and just tell the audience a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Wonderful. Yeah. So my name is Meredith and I'm 28. I live in North London. I would describe myself as a um, feminist ceramics enthusiast. So I make pussy pots, which are hand-thrown ceramic bowls with vulva in the middle of the bowls and the point is that every single bowl is unique just like the bodies that inspire them and really the mission is about representing the diversity that exists between bodies and between vulvas because it's not really an image that's out there in the world and if it is out there in the world it's out there in a very very narrow form of kind of one version of what a vulva should look like and I I also um, have been repeatedly struck by how difficult it is for for everyone, I guess, but particularly women to talk about their genitals and their sexual pleasure. And so I kind of hope that by literally getting this out on the table, I can provoke some more discussions. Definitely a conversation starter, (laughs) which is really great. I do get the argument that, you know, it's a private part of the body. Does it necessarily need to be on your kitchen table? I hear you. I hear you. I guess for me, I think that the like negative impacts of not being able to talk about it and not knowing what it looks like means we kind of need to pendulum swing the other way a little bit. And just, you know, so many, so many people when they Mm -hmm. encounter them are so shocked by the variety that, that exists and really surprised that they are drawn from life. So yeah, I kind of think it's worth (laughs) ruffling a few feathers and um, serving crisps in them in the short term to get everyone more comfortable with the idea. Well, thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work. I think I just stumbled across it on Instagram. I'm not sure. But when did you start? And then when did it pick up in terms of reception? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, it's all quite recent. So I started about a year ago, although actually I've kind of just not been counting time through COVID. So <laughs> yeah. Maybe the summer before last. Yeah, I've been doing ceramics for a while, but started thinking about how I could 
you know, combine my two loves of feminism and pottery. I sort of set myself down with my clay and I was like, wicked, I'll just, um, what I'll do is I'll just make a vulva. And then I was like, I have no idea what they look like. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a very good stuff. So did some Googling and found some anatomical diagrams. And yeah, so I guess for clarity, the things that the things that I learned include, well, I always start my my models from the clitoris and work outwards. So the clitoris has been kind of the center point. The clitoral hood is then the piece of skin that covers the clitoris in, in some vulvas, in others it might be uh, kind of surrounding it. And then beneath that, you have the inner lips, so the labia minora, and then the outer lips, labia majora. And then the, quite like this, the vestibule is the kind of entrance to the vagina, the vaginal canal. So that's where I'd like the sort of waiting room, if you will. And then my final bit, which I quite like, is la fourchette, which is um, the little bit of skin at the, well, it literally translates as the fork, but at the bottom of the vagina, the kind of little V of skin closes mm-hmm. closes at the bottom, I guess, which I think is quite sweet. But yeah, I, I just, this anatomical knowledge that I just didn't have. And it's unsurprising. So I think um, YouGov did a study and found that only 50% of people can kind of correctly label those parts um, and not even to the level of detail that, that we've talked about. And that was for both men and, and women. Yeah. The education can only help everybody. And I mean, it's doing a disservice to men too to have a very narrow understanding of female pleasure. It, it's just been such a like, wonderful community to be a part of. I've, I've never really engaged with people on Instagram the way that I have since starting Pussy Pots and such like a beautiful supportive community that it felt like it kind of built up quite quickly and then yeah I think there was a kind of key a key moment when I donated a piece to be part of the Vagina Museum's like reopening charity auction and that was obviously great in terms of the the people that were interested in the Vagina Museum were almost always interested in Pussypots. So that was really nice to get the word out there. So honestly, I started out by just paying a bit more attention when I was watching porn to see if I could broaden my awareness of different people's bodies. That didn't really help, unsurprisingly. So there are actually a couple of amazing resources online, which I will endlessly promote. Like uh, there's something called Flip Through My Flaps, which is a resource created by uh, another kind of vulva positive woman on Instagram. And they're essentially, it's just a library of pictures of women's vulvas in all their glorious diversity and difference. So those have been incredibly useful to kind of make sure that I'm trying to be as representative as possible. I was actually listening to um, BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour, which is a wonderful, Mm. wonderful programme. And they were talking last week about vulva anxiety, which is a term I hadn't heard coined, but is exactly, exactly what I'm trying to combat. And they were saying that absolutely there's, there's a few things that go on which mean that we um, don't see an accurate representation of the body in porn. I mean, to be honest, like all the other body parts, in that a lot of the images are digitally retouched. I hadn't realised that it is by far more common to have labia minora that extend visibly beyond labia majora. And this is the kind of the main thing, long inner lips, that um, vulva anxiety tends to be rooted around. Mm-hmm. Labiaplasty offer, offers to solve, if you will, um, is to kind of trim or shorten the labia. And yeah, I mean, Jesus, the fact that it's not even like we're talking about something that is healthy but unusual that women would like to change. We're talking about something that is the default and the norm that we would like to change, which I guess shouldn't be surprising given 
you know, how we feel about weight and body hair. But yeah, news to me and kind of really entrenched the fact that, I, you know, I even came with the assumption that that was less common and fine, but unusual. <laughs> and yeah, to, to really realize and entrench that, that is the most common execution of a vulva uh, was right. good to learn about. But yeah, they're essentially trimming women and the video content before it's kind of released. Because of the kind of perpetuating bias, it tends to draw women in who are, you know, perhaps have a more um, yeah, minimalist type of vulva. Mm. And that tends to be kind of perpetuated and held up as the ideal. Some horrifying statistics about the number of women in porn who have had labiaplasties. So it's yeah. wi- wildly unrealistic and unrepresentative. And frankly, that that's where, you know, kids and adults are kind of getting our experience from, unless you are, you know, in the wonderfully lucky position of being able to be exposed to lots of women's vulvas in other contexts. That's kind of where we're getting our information right. from, which is, um, yeah, worrying and disappointing. Also, the distinction that you're drawing, which I know is super important, but in my own vocabulary, I don't do enough between vulva and vagina. Colloquially, like, I don't know anyone that says vulva ever like I never heard that actually I ended up having to explain to a guy on a date the other day he'd never even heard the term vulva it wasn't just that he was misusing vagina (laughs) I explained what I did with my spare time and I explained that I I make vulva pots (laughs) he's like what's a vulva great I was like oh (laughs) this doesn't bode well for you and I (laughs) poor man yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what else am I going to have to explain to you, my dear friend? But no, it's it's such a common, <laughs> such a common misconception. For clarity, for listeners, so the vulva refers to the entire external visible portion of the female reproductive system. So that's labia minora, majora, um, the clitoris if it's visible, the clitoral hood, and then the vagina itself is just the yeah, just the canal, the equivalent of um, I don't know mm-hmm. your mouth versus your esophagus maybe only one percent of parents use the term vulva with their with their children and actually only one in five parents ever refer to a female anatomy at all so quite often it is just not spoken about so it's kind of no wonder that we don't really know the right terms for these things and I mean I guess that's not inherently problematic in itself that we don't know what we're talking about but I think it has implications when it comes to talking about your pleasure and also your health. You know, if you're not able to accurately describe to a doctor what you're talking about, that's not a good starting point for having a kind of really helpful, open, honest conversation with doctors and or sexual partners. I don't think that people go into first watching porn knowing what they like. They're told what they're supposed to like. And that's the same like body hair yeah, too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's loads of similarities and kind of parallels there in that, you know, there's nothing inherently good or bad about any of the ways that we wear our hair or that our bodies look. But, you know, of course, the way that we are first exposed to it is really influential. I mean, there's lots of really, really cool progressive sexual educators that I've come across talking about female pleasure early in sex education, which would do so many things. If you think about it, it would remove the stigma around female sexual pleasure. It would normalize female pleasure in the kind of narrative of sex, perhaps go some way to closing the orgasm gap. But also it would get people curious about their bodies and kind of attending to not just what is this part of my body that is for producing babies and by which I will have periods. It just feels like why why on earth would we not start to talk about this stuff that we learn 
horribly badly, very inconsistently, fumbling around in the dark, far too late, in my view. Right. And it's also coded as like, that's a dirty thing that we don't talk about. And like, if you can ingrain that at that age, then you might as well ingrain something positive. Absolutely. And that's because they're going to get it either way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the dirty narrative is, um, yeah, quite potent and quite important. There's also a a whole industry of like feminine hygiene products that exist and encourage you to clean your vagina. This is esophagus comparison. You'd brush your teeth, so you should clean your vulva, but you'd never get up in there Mm. and try and clean your throat. And just the the kind of misinformation around that is is huge. Like the vagina is a self-cleaning thing and products can actually alter the pH balance in a really unhealthy way for your vagina. But I, I think we have this, clean dirty narrative which is inherently linked I think to like female sexuality that means that we are yeah so ignorant with regards to what our bodies should feel like should smell like taste like at different times of the month yeah I think that would be a really helpful starting point to sort of break down some of the shame associated with it I mean that's one of the to me that's the double-edged sword of some artistic depictions of vulvas because it, I think they are really beautiful, so they should absolutely be celebrated and in that way likened to flowers or a cantaloupe or a grapefruit. If Teen Vogue publishes an article about vulvas, they'll definitely use like some euphemism like lemon cut in half or something. Yeah. But then that also instills the idea that, okay, if it's a flower, then like it has to smell like a flower, it has to be delicate like a flower, or it has to be fresh like fruit. I mean, you know, there's so many messages that come with that mm. that... That's why I was really drawn to your work, because you're actually showing what it is. It's not like this series of associations to just keep it secret still. Keep it hidden. And it's it's interesting because yeah, it becomes very easy to imagine how you wouldn't really have a reference point for understanding what like the breadth of normal looks like. Do you think that's something that you've become more comfortable with or were you always kind of prepared for a potential negative response from some people. I think perhaps I am a little bit drawn to doing things that might provoke a conversation or a surprised response. But it's been interesting how much people have surprised me with all of their responses, positive and negative, actually. So yeah, from the positive side, I've had my friends saying that it has genuinely changed her perceptions of what like beauty can can be and that she'd always assumed, hadn't really thought about it, but mm-hmm. assumed that less is more. And that's no longer what she thought because, um, yeah, frankly, some of the most like enjoyable, satisfying, tactile um, pots that I make are the ones with a little bit more going on. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, they're also the most fun to make. So, yeah, the fact that that can have a positive um, impact on how someone views their own body um, and what the kind of standard should, should be is brilliant. And then, yeah, inevitably I've had some negative responses of lots of different flavours. I kind of always take pride in following up on each one of my trolls and trying to engage them in a dialogue about, oh, it's interesting. Why do you find that disgusting? Like, please tell me why you have used the vomiting emoji under this picture. And mostly that doesn't go anywhere. But sometimes um, I've been able to actually have a bit of a conversation with them and kind of challenge some of their their views. And I had one very positive interaction that ended with a, oh, hadn't thought about it that way. Have a nice Sunday. I was like, that's great. That is success. If I'm able to reach not just the converted, but also this random dude, I feel like it's it's going okay. And that's also, I mean, you have to look for the Pussy Pots account to get to it. 
in order to be disgusted by it. So like somebody was doing some searching so true. that maybe they didn't want to talk about. How did you arrive at the name? I, mean, I know obviously like it's alliterative and catchy, but also it's a very loaded word. And I was wondering what sort of went into that for you. Like yeah. how did you how do you feel yeah. about that? I thought about it a lot for a couple of months, really, as, as to what word I should be using. My start point was vulva. I thought it was important to use that as part of the conversation. I also really wanted to reclaim the word pussy. So pussy as an insult, I think, is, I mean, frankly, hilarious. What stronger thing can you imagine? <laughs> so calling someone a pussy, huge compliment. So I'm kind of a fan of taking that word, taking that word back. I think it's important to know what we're talking about. So I do try and weave the word vulva into a lot of uh, kind of conversations about it. But again, I'm kind of treading that line of wanting this to be something that feels like a little bit fun for people to engage with and like seems um, accessible, I guess. And if we're honest, mm -hmm. given how many people know what vulva is, that's a difficult start point. And I, I really do think that, you know, is this guy that I went on a date with that didn't know what Volvo was, like, is he going to have any interest or feel like it's for him or feel like he can engage in the conversation if he doesn't even know what the mm. thing is? I'd rather draw people in and then um, yeah. them in, in the conversation. And again, maybe things will change, um, but that's, that's kind of where I am at the moment, kind of what my thought process was. I was reading a little bit about the etymological origin of the word pussy, which is not known 100% but there is a very serious entry in the Oxford English Dictionary about pussy and I'm just picturing some old man writing that out with like a quill <laughs> which definitely didn't happen but just it's like this is from the Huffington Post the Oxford English Dictionary claims that the term was used in the late 1500s to reference a girl or woman exhibiting characteristics associated with a cat like sweetness or amiability huh so it's like implying that it's a docile thing which I hadn't ever really I never made the cat association like that directly so interesting but, I also feel like that person like hasn't met the same cats that I've met because yeah <laughs> docile and amiable is not what I can say about my cats sort of aggressive and highly judgmental which is also how I would describe my vulva so it works <laughs> Very discerning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the many original words that was used for like female genitalia is like the pudendo, pudendo membra, which the literal translation of that from I think ancient Greek is um, parts that one should be ashamed of. It's like God, that's a really? a lot of years that we've been entrenching shame. On the positive, on the positive side, one theory about where the word clitoris comes from is that it's linked to the Greek word for key. And I kind of love that we hold the like key to our own locks, you know? I think there's something quite poetic and beautiful mm -hmm. about that. <laughs> How did you start the commissions process? Like what was it like building up those relationships? Obviously it's an incredibly like intimate and personal thing. And um yeah. I always feel so kind of honored that someone is willing to like have me and my art be part of their almost always a kind of journey of self-acceptance and self-love. It came about just as a suggestion from a friend that she said that she would like to give one to her partner um, that was personalized. And at first I felt really shocked. Um, <laughs> I was like, why on earth are you being shocked by this? Me of all people. But yeah, the idea of kind of 
you know, that actually specifically my friend has a vulva felt quite shocking at the time. That's worn off now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Novelty value definitely isn't isn't there. But yeah, I, I always try and have a bit of a conversation with um with the people who are commissioning pots because it is a it is a big deal. And you know, I had never taken a photo of my mm-hmm. vulva before trying to make some art based on it. So yeah, I think it's really important to kind of talk them through the process, data security, etc. All very integral. But then yeah, I've yeah. I've been so thrilled at the kind of role it's been able to have for some people. And I had some woman that that messaged me after she'd received her portrait and said that she just stood there with the bowl holding it weeping for 10 minutes after she'd received it in a positive way I think (laughs) but yeah yeah, it's nice to be able to be so so involved in such an intimate thing you also have some trans and non-binary commissions too yeah that that's felt like a really um privileged thing I guess for me to be able to be a part of um to have you know commissions from I guess particularly trans women um obviously been through such a journey with their bodies and their genitals um and to be able to sort of immortalize some of that was like a really really special beautiful thing for me people have so many opinions about whether or not people should be allowed to undergo surgery and yet we let this industry of telling people with vulvas that they don't look small enough they don't look tight enough you know whatever it is we just let that run rampant and don't acknowledge it at all and just focus all our anxieties on in my opinion the wrong yeah. we're going in the wrong spot yeah yeah I hadn't thought about that at all and the fact you know this recent debate around the age that one needs to be in order to have bottom surgery or yeah kind of affirmative yeah. surgery um and the fact that you know there's reports of on the English National Health Service girls as young as nine being offered labiaplasty and almost always, you know, there'll, there'll be a kind of an argument that it's a functional thing, that the labia minora are like problematic or in some way or causing pain. But I've also read some things about it just being, you know, causing distress because the girl doesn't think that that's how her body is supposed to look, which is then reinforced by a medical system that's offering to solve that problem. In researching labiaplasty, there were some, like I think the International Association of Plastic Surgeons technically reports that you shouldn't really operate do a labiaplasty on someone under 18 just because the clitoral hood is still developing at that age and like can develop further, I guess, into your 20s mm-hmm. after puberty. But also, yeah, I mean, it can almost be like a medical diagnosis of distress, which is actually just socially imposed is really yeah. messed Absolutely. up. It's actually really, really common for the ratio of labia minora to majora to change dramatically throughout puberty because they develop at different at different rates. So you kind of don't even know what mm. you're working with <laughs> until you're through that process. So, right. Yeah. I just noticed like on a lot of the websites I saw the pictures that were associated with labiaplasty are like women rolling around on a bed with a man who's like very happy that their vulva is tiny now or whatever. Like it's never like a woman riding a bike without discomfort or any of the potential medical purposes that a labiaplasty would be good for. I mean, the male gaze is just unrelenting. Labiaplasty is the fastest growing cosmetic surgery. 
-hmm. which just feels baffling to me in a time when on the whole I feel like we are doing a little bit better at challenging the kind of expectations of what bodies should look like and feeling a little bit more comfortable with placing value other than on our bodies and the way that they look whilst that's happening we're also kind of missing this huge discussion that's causing girls and women to undergo surgery to make themselves look how they think that you know often their partners should expect them to look like there's a lot of discussion around it around the fact that medical textbooks are not as detailed when they speak about female anatomy as they do male and there's kind of an argument that labiaplasties are more likely to go wrong because we're not educating our doctors in, the, in this to the same level of detail and also really importantly to the same level of detail around the bits that connect to pleasure of vulvas as we do for, for penises some of the like cross sections that i've seen in medical textbooks that just crudely grouping together <laughs> and sort of glazing over a whole zone where you know in the male equivalent there'll be a, a super super detailed description of what all of the various parts do and there's some um Pretty serious horror stories out there about, you know, people whose various nerves have been accidentally cut. Um, oh, a, really? Yeah, yeah, which is uh, horrifying. So I, I guess a lot of my work is very much, it's obviously about anatomy, but it's also about sexuality. Mm-hmm. One thing I learned recently is that for a vulva owner, inability to orgasm during penetrative sex was a mental disorder up until 94, very recently, such was the lack of understanding of how the female body works and how pleasure happens. I think the orgasm gap is something that has become more accepted in modern discourse, but I mean, there's such a precedent for vulva owners feeling uncomfortable and like you are inconveniencing the world just by owning that already. What made you decide to do bowls specifically? Were you thinking about other shapes or mediums? There's a little bit around the the sort of the vessel, which I quite liked as kind of relating to, to women. And I also thought it would be fun to fill them with crisps and then have people slowly eat the crisps and then reveal the vulva at the end, which is perhaps slightly less abstract and nuanced interpretation of why a bowl is a good idea. <laughs> but that's where we are. My dad gets really annoyed when I do it. But there we go. <laughs> but so you have done some based on your own vulva. Yeah, yeah. So I really wanted to check that the portrait process worked. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to offer some guidance on how to take a good photograph of your vulva. So obviously, yeah. I have I had to do this myself, which was fun. And also, I realized that I didn't know what I looked like, um, which was mm-hmm. a helpful reminder as to all of the stuff that I say to other people to also say to myself. For a while, I didn't tell anyone at work um, what I was what, what I was exploring with my ceramics. I work for a big supermarket in the UK. And I work in healthy, sustainable diets. So basically trying to encourage people to eat more fruit and veg and less meat. Eventually I was like, this is silly. The point is to be able to talk about it. You know, I don't need to advertise it, but Mm. if people ask me, I'm going to tell them. And interestingly, everyone assumed that this was my big coming out moment. By kind of wanting to take up the the cause, then that meant that automatically I was gay, which is an interesting assumption. I, I do date both men and women. I was kind of baffled by that. What an elaborate way to come out. So, so labor intensive oh my god <laughs> you have to start like a genital oriented business in order to come out <laughs> to the police. 
like monetize your coming out story (laughs) capitalism everything yes (laughs) i love it i think a lot of people thought it was there's a kind of gimmicky or novelty interpretation to this you know a little bit like the penis straws at a hindu so I've always been quite careful not to frame it in that that direction. And yeah, it's such a, fine, such a fine line. But lots of people, more often guys, they were like, oh my God, hilarious, hilarious that you do this. It's like, oh, I don't think that's quite what I intended. I'm not sure hilarity is what I was, yeah. like, maybe that's good. Um, maybe it's a start. Maybe it's okay if humor is like the way that we talk about this. But yeah, I was a little a little bit surprised by that by that response. Hmm. I mean, I feel like humor is the most immediate conduit for extreme discomfort. So maybe that's some of what you were receiving too. So Laura Dodsworth, who's a photographer, artist, very cool. She did a book project and a TV show called A Hundred Vaginas, which was a I thought was really beautiful because it was both portraits, beautiful pictures and portraits of, of women's bodies, which is a lovely starting point for kind of awareness. But then she also explored kind of other subjects related to, you know, that can, I don't know, the topic can kind of manifest in a discussion around the female body. So talked about motherhood mm-hmm. and pain and all of these these things that are kind of really connected with, I guess, the female experience. And then how for women that kind of mm. manifests in their in their vulva, which was fascinating, um, has made me think that a project I would really like to do is something around motherhood or birth or age. I've been really torn about uh, the color of the the bowls. So by default, I, just I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, it's I I am yeah would be interested in your thoughts to be honest because I'm not certainly not resolved um, in where I go next. Mm. So by default the um bowls that I do so far are I work with white stoneware because white stoneware is cheap right. and that's what we use in my studio and that means that all of the all of the bowls turn out white so something I've been really conscious to do right. is to try and make sure the shapes and the anatomies that I'm working with are not just of white women but I'm really conscious that 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 may be a kind of implicit suggestion um by having all of the bowls white I am a little nervous about trying to get into like flesh tones because I worry that things might stray into the slightly gimmicky territory. But I think I found a middle ground, which I'm excited about, which is to use different types of clay as a start point. But I'm really excited to try with like some terracotta and see how that comes out and some earthenware. And, you know, none of them will be accurate or close to skin tones, but I, I think it might be quite an important place to go next in terms of exploration of diversity. If we're honest, I, I am trying to make it in some ways acceptable, I think, mm-hmm. uh, or like more palatable or less shocking, such that it gets out there at all. Yeah, I feel like that's the eternal struggle when you're sort of taking what shouldn't be, but what is ultimately a political stance in some ways. Like, do you make it palatable enough so that more people engage with it, or do you retain? maybe some more integrity, but then, like you said before with your trolls, it might only reach the converted and not really yeah. impact the audience outside of that. Yeah, I think that's really well articulated and it's kind of not a comfortable dilemma to sit with because you yeah. don't have the idea of compromising the integrity and making things more palatable. On the other hand, I, 
if it's an existential question, I do want them out there. I do want them on conservative middle-aged women's coffee tables. <laughs> and at the moment, it, feel, it feels like I've hit a, a bit of a sweet spot in terms of people wanting to own these objects and display mm. them in houses, but also being able to provoke the beginning of a conversation. So maybe a few years down the line, we'll be in a different, a different place and I can get a little more literal. But I guess implicitly for now, that's a trade-off I've made. One of my the fa- favourite thing that has happened or very delightful thing that happened the other day is that I was on a date with a girl I was obviously I was talking about pussy pots if not on a date with a woman then honestly when (laughs) (laughs) and and she was like yeah you know I already follow you I'd heard of you I was like I'm sorry are you are you for real (laughs) the idea of existing (laughs) I know isn't that amazing (laughs) it seemed like just talking to you it seems like you're so comfortable and very established in fighting against vulva anxiety but do you ever find yourself still struggling with anything like that? It took me a really, really, really long time to be able to orgasm. And when mm-hmm. I was younger, I didn't really masturbate. And I think I didn't even really examine why I didn't. I just sort of thought, not for me, fair enough. And when I started experimenting in you know, my mid-20s, there was so much inherent shame. And I was by that point old enough to, to understand that and to kind of assess it and to be able to introspect mm-hmm. on it. And I think that's absolutely something that Pussybots has helped me work through because by having all of these conversations, you just can't help but, you know, start to ingest some of the positivity that all of these other incredible people are kind of projecting as well. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Kenny Noel, Meredith Ford, and Dan Valu. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod or by email at the All Alone Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.